Welcome to Procopio Perspectives, a podcast featuring award-winning corporate and litigation attorneys providing useful legal insights on the latest issues of the day. Today's podcast features three Procopio IP partners discussing a forthcoming U.S. Supreme Court ruling. The court will decide whether Amgen's patent, which claims antibodies by functional antigen binding, is invalid for not meeting the enablement requirements of Section 112A. You'll hear from our San Diego-based life sciences practice leader, Jeff Morton, who has a PhD in immunology, Bob Sloss, an IP litigator in our Silicon Valley office, and Jeremy Edwards, an IP litigator in our Washington, D.C. office. This podcast was adopted from a webinar. We'll start with Jeff. So this case is interesting for a number of reasons. And as we'll go into today, there's an interest from you know those of us that do a lot of preparation and prosecution of patent applications in front of the USPTO, as well as for the litigators who ultimately argue for the validity or infringement of these types of patents. So just a, a little bit of background, given that there is a wide variety of attendees at today's webinar. These are just some very sort of key legal statutory concepts in patent preparation and prosecution. And so during the patent process, there's sort of four fundamental statutory requirements that need to be met in order to get a um, allowed and ultimately a granted patent. First of all, the patent claims need to claim eligible subject matter. Not everything is patentable. Secondly, the patent claims need to be novel. They need to be new over anything else that's come before it. Thirdly, and this is one where the prosecutors spend a lot of our lives, uh, the claims need to be non-obvious or inventive over everything that's come before. And then the fourth point, which is where we're going to be focused today, is Section 35 U.S.C. 112, which focuses on the requirement that the patent specification contains a written description of the invention that's sufficient to enable any person to make and use the invention. This is an area that, as Bob will indicate, doesn't sort of get litigated a lot. And so it's of significant interest both to the litigators and then ultimately for those of us who are developing new IP protection for clients. Now we'll hear from Bob. It's kind of the flip side. In litigation, what we try to do is take the the things that Jeff mentioned that he needs to get in order to to get a patent. We try to undo those. So as most of you know, a patent is presumed to be valid once it's issued, but that's not where the fight ends. In court, we have the opportunity to try to invalidate the patent. And these are the grounds we usually seek to do it, either that it's ineligible subject matter, that it's not novel or it's anticipated by prior art, that it's obvious in light of prior art combinations. As Jeff said, this is something he, as a prosecutor, spends a lot of time on. We as litigators spend a lot of time on it as well, trying to find uh, invalidating prior art and arguing to the court that the prior art does in fact invalidate the patent. And then finally, the one we're going to be talking about today is whether the patent sufficiently enables or contains a written description of the invention. As I said, there's a presumption of that the patent is valid, and it's up to the defendant to prove it's not by clear and convincing evidence. Okay, so we'll delve into a little bit in terms of the background on this, on this case. We're dealing with the world of heart disease and high LDL cholesterol, which can cause heart disease, which does cause heart disease. Amgen invented what are called monoclonal antibodies that lower LDL cholesterol levels. And essentially, Amgen's antibodies bind to a specific region of an enzyme called PCSK9. And that binding results in decreased degradation of the LDL receptor which means that there's more LDL receptor to uptake LDL from the bloodstream. 
So that is what we're dealing with. And this is Amgen's product is marketed as Repatha. And, you know, these are multi-billion dollar a year drugs that we're dealing with. In terms of what antibodies are, antibodies are components of the immune system and they target what's called an antigen, which is usually a protein. And it's sort of a Y-shaped biological molecule. And one of the benefits of sort of monoclonal antibody production is you can generate sort of an unlimited supply of absolutely identical antibodies that can be used to treat whatever uh, the antibody binds. Now, historically, antibodies have been claimed in patents historically at two ends of the spectrum. In one end, it's by their primary sequence. Uh, antibodies are, are proteins and they're made of amino acids. And so you can identify at a very granular level the exact amino acid at the exact position. The challenge with that, as we'll go into, is that ends up usually being a fairly narrow claim because someone could come in and remove one amino acid and substitute it for another. So at the other end of the spectrum, in the broad end of the spectrum, antibodies can be claimed based on what they interact with or what they bind with. So the antibody is binding to an antigen. And that's exactly how the Amgen patents were prepared and drafted and prosecuted. So here are the two uh, Amgen patents that are subject to this litigation. The first one is the 165 patent and the second is the 741. And they're actually quite similar. And I'll just sort of focus on the first one. And it's, uh, it's an isolated monoclonal antibody that when it's bound to the enzyme that we're talking about, it binds at least one of the following residues. And there's 15 amino acid residues in the enzyme that have been identified. And then there is a limitation that it that there is a blocking of PCSK9 to LDL receptor. And it's it's quite a similar story with the second patent, except it's focused on two residues. So the issue here is that when you actually sort of extrapolate what is potentially claimed in these claims, there are a myriad of of antibodies that could potentially carry out this function. And you certainly hear people throw out the idea that there's hundreds of thousands to millions of variant antibodies that could fall within this claim. So this is from a factual perspective, how we're set up for the subsequent legal argument that we have claims here that have the potential to have a significant amount of breadth because they are de facto genus claims in the biotech sector. Uh, okay, so let's get into the litigation itself. Well, a bit of a backstory to this. As you see, the defendant in this case is Sanofi, another large pharmaceutical company. They actually independently developed their own antibodies that, that basically did the same kind of binding to this PCSK9. And because of the way they proceeded internally, actually made it to market first with a product called, I think it's pronounced Prelulet. Luent. And as I said, it was developed independently. As you know, in patent law, though, independent development does not insulate you from liability. If you, there's a patent out there, regardless of how you developed your product, if it infringes, it infringes. That being the case, Amgen sued Sanofi in 2014. So this case has been around for a long time. Sanofi stipulated to infringement. It basically concluded that yes, it's antibody does what's claimed in these patents. So it rather than trying to fight infringement, it challenged the validity of the patent with its main focus being on enablement. So the, the case went to trial several years ago. 
and the jury found that the patents were in fact enabled. And so they ruled against Sanofi and in favor of Amgen. Sanofi appealed the first time and the federal circuit vacated the, the judgment and remanded to the district court again to again take up the issue of enablement. The second jury also found that the patents were sufficiently enabled, but the court granted JMOL, which means a motion for judgment on, on the basis of law, saying that the jury was in error in finding that the patents had been enabled and it entered judgment of non-infringement based on invalidity uh, in favor of Sanofi. Now, this is a very, very unusual thing for a court to do to overrule the jury, essentially. But the court found that there just wasn't enough evidence to find that the patents were enabled because the court concluded that they, they required undue experimentation to be able to fully realize everything that Amgen was claiming the patent covered. And so the court, as I said, took the, the verdict away from the jury and entered judgment in favor of Sanofi. So Amgen then appealed to the federal circuit. The federal circuit unanimously affirmed the district court's finding of no enablement. And some of the language the court used was that, that these genus claims face uniquely high burdens in fulfilling the enablement requirement. And that's because there are so many different possibilities that it would require substantial time and effort, too much time and effort for a person of skill in the art to identify and make all or nearly all variations of the invention that might exist within the genus. As Jeff said, there could be as many as a million plus different iterations of this that would lead to different antibodies. It's just a statistical calculation, but when you take all the variables that go into it, there are possibly you know, as many as a million different combinations that would work. And so the, the district court said, based on that, there's no way that the patent could be fully enabled the way Amgen was claiming it could be, and therefore the patent was invalid. Now Jeremy joins the conversation. What we see is that the claims were very broad, and you mentioned why that might be. When the court or the jury is engaging in an analysis of whether there's enablement, they look to the patent itself and the specification. And I'm curious, and maybe Jeff looked at this closer, if, if you could tell us in general, what did the specification of these patents look like? Was it bare bones? Was it voluminous? You know, how much guidance did it provide? Yeah, it's a very good question. And you know, in my view, this is a very well prepared patent. I don't think this is a case of bad facts make bad law. This is a very significant patent document prepared by a very good firm. It's, I think, around 350 pages. There are 41 examples, page after page, outlining precisely how they prepared well over two dozen antibodies that all have a sort of similar function as it relates to the binding of this enzyme. Now, admittedly, they did not go and generate a million different antibodies or a thousand antibodies. They did sort of well over two dozen. And I think to a certain extent, you can certainly make the argument that they've outlined the steps necessary to produce and test those antibodies. And there's sort of an interesting line in Amgen's petition for cert that says essentially, and I'll just read off the petition itself, it says that if a claim truly exceeds what the patent enables, the challenger will be able to provide concrete identification of at least one embodiment that cannot be made or used without undue experimentation. And the argument is here, Sanofi identified no embodiment or no antibody within the claims that could not be generated using 
the patent's disclosures. So that's certainly one line of argument that what we're dealing with here is a pretty robust patent filing. Again, understanding that part of the patent process and the experimental process in the life sciences is that you can't wait until everything is done because there's at some point going to be disclosures made. And so I would look at this as a very high bar patent in terms of how they develop things. Now, as we'll get to later in the presentation, there are, I'm sure, things that, you know, if you had the benefit of perfect hindsight, you go back and perhaps change. And I think that's one of the things that is changing in life sciences practice is having further fallbacks in terms of how you are preparing the application and how you're claiming these types of antibody inventions. But this is definitely not a case where I would say it's a bare bones patent that only discloses one antibody and leaves it to you know the general skill of the person skilled in the art to 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 figure out the rest. That's been that's my view. Thank you, Jeff and Bob. I think you were about to take us to the Supreme Court's grant. Yeah, and I think some around. of the things that Jeff just talked about, you'll see, is kind of what's really at issue here in the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court did grant Amgen's petition for certiorari. And I, I've laid out here pretty much exactly what the issue is that the Supreme Court is going to rule on and whether enablement is governed by the statutory requirement that the specification teach those skilled in the art to make and use the claim invention. Or, and this is kind of what Sanofi's argument is, whether it must instead enable those skilled in the art to reach the full scope of the claimed embodiments. And this gets you know into what is the full scope? It must, it doesn't have to be all 1 million possibilities, or I think it was 26 different antibodies that are identified in the specification. Was that enough? And so that, that's what the Supreme Court ultimately is going to be ruling on. And this is just a very, very quick summary of the argument. I, I should say that the issues that were actually in this court and before the Supreme Court now are very complicated, very well argued by the parties. And this is just really a very short summary of what's there, but it's, it's all very nuanced and very difficult questions. So Amgen is, is essentially taking the position that the federal circuit ruling that the, the patents weren't fully enabled imposed a standard that really doesn't exist in the statute, that all the statute says is it has to be a person of skill in the art has to be able to enable what's invented, not to reach what the Court of Appeals called the full scope of the claimed embodiments. That's just not part of the statute, according to Amgen. On the other hand, Sanofi is taking the position that what Amgen gets, if it doesn't provide more in the way of enablement, is ability to monopolize basically everything that the patent can functionally do. That's just too, too broad. And that what it will do, it will deprive the marketplace of an alternative product here that could save lives and be of great help to people, but that the patent is preventing that from happening if, if it's allowed to proceed as Amgen wants it to proceed. So what we have here is really, a, a, as Jeff said, the patents are well drafted. So this is not an issue of you know one lawyer being able to take advantage of another's mistake or anything like that. This is really a pretty deep philosophical issue for particularly this type of life science patent. You know, what should the scope be? And that's ultimately what the Supreme Court is hopefully going to decide. Looking ahead, both from the prosecution commercialization perspective as well as Bob will make some comments on litigation about why is this case important? And again, you know, we don't know how the court is going to rule. Uh, first of all, in the biotech area, the chemical area, the pharmaceutical area, 
people are really paying attention to this case. Not a lot of patent cases come before the Supreme Court and even fewer oftentimes relate to life sciences. So this is kind of exciting for all of us. And at a fundamental level, one of the reasons that we're interested in this is this concept of a genus claim. Obtaining a claim where the commonality is, is a certain functionality of what's being claimed, albeit with different structures. So in this case, we're dealing with antibodies that have a functional commonality, even though the amino acid primary sequence could be distinguished. And that's a fundamental part historically of life science patent work is dealing with this because biomolecules are large molecules. And if you are limited to sort of primary sequences, it's very easy to design around this. And so certainly for those of us that work in the startup life sciences space, there is a real commercial importance to this. Startup clients need to obtain good patent protection to facilitate uh, good investment. And if you have very narrow patents with no prospect of getting broader coverage, it's going to be harder to get further investment into your company and to ultimately develop a, a useful therapeutic. So again, where we're down to is this sort of fundamental tension that I think Bob really spoke much better about than I am, which is this concept of, you know, is a broad patent an unreasonable monopoly versus a situation of a narrow patent that is easy to design around. Historically, one of the ways that you address these types of issues was working towards more and more working examples, more experimental data. But, you know, when you go and look at what Amgen did here, they did a really, I think, a very, very good job of this. This is different from a lot of other cases where you know, you might see a situation where someone has one molecule or one or two lead products and they're trying to get an expansive monopoly. We're dealing with a different situation here in my respectful view. This is sort of my final point that this case, as well as other cases, and I'd say a trend at the USPTO has, I think, started to impact how life science applications are being prepared. And again, these are sort of high level concepts. Um, they're certainly open to debate whether here or elsewhere. I've summarized these in sort of three points. The first is there is a, a move towards more data, more examples. Some of the people I've trained with really pushed this on me, you know, when I was training. And I, I think they're absolutely right that the more data you have, the more examples you have, the better. A second point, which I think is a little bit more challenging, is that one of the things you see when you start reading about this case is this concept that there wasn't enough, perhaps, instruction to the person skilled in the art for how they could carry out the experiments necessary to realize the full scope of this patent. And again, that's up for argument as well. But I think there might be a movement towards patent drafting where there is a bit more instruction in terms of what people skilled in the art could do to look at other variants. I think there's a natural hesitancy to do that because the more you do that, I think you might set yourself up for obviousness arguments against your own art later on. So I think a lot of us were trained in a way to avoid poisoning the well for your own later IP. And in some instances, that might be coming back to haunt patent filings that don't provide as much instruction as they otherwise might. With respect to antibody claiming, there is definitely a tendency moving towards focusing on claiming the antibodies themselves instead of focusing on what the antibody binds, what's called the newly characterized antigen test in the United States, unlike many other places in the world is, is kind of dead. 
And so there is much more of a tendency now to focus on the sequences and the motifs in the antibody and focus less on the antigen, at least as a backup position. And then thirdly, as, as I said at the beginning of this presentation, historically, there's been sort of polar ends of how you claim antibodies. At one end, you would have narrow primary sequence ways of doing that. And then at the other end, what we're dealing with in the Amgen case, which is an antibody bound to a particular antigen. I think there is a middle ground. And one of the middle grounds is that the ends of the Y portion of the antibodies are these variable regions that have these protein loops called CDR loops, which stand for complementarity determining regions. And it's these protein loops that really are the key to the binding with the antigen. And what you see in many instances is that there's highly conserved amino acid sequences within those CDR loops. So what a number of biotech companies and their counsel now do is try to find consensus sequences in those CDR loops so that you can have some level of certainty of what the protein needs to look like in those regions while still permitting a certain allowance of variability in the other amino acids that are actually not as important in the binding of the antigen and thus the efficacy of the antibody. So I think that is something that is, is more prevalent now than looking at patent claims from you know 10 years ago, where really they did a lot more of what Amgen was doing here. And so with that said, I'll move over to Bob for his synopsis on litigation. Actually, my comments are a little briefer because really we won't know until we get a decision, of course. But I think this is a big deal. As Jeff said, we don't get a lot of Supreme Court patent cases. So anytime there's a patent case that the Supreme Court's going to decide, you know, those of us who are patent geeks get pretty excited about it. So that's really the kind of the main thing is, you know, what's the Supreme Court going to do on this? For this type of case, you know, obviously, if you're defending a company that's being sued for infringement of an antibody patent, this could give you a whole new line of defense. If you're representing the patent owner, you might have to rethink how you're going to approach the case. So it could throw open pending cases and cases that are perhaps perhaps being considered for filing as to what the approach should be for this type of, of patent. As I think Jeff said early on in the presentation, you know, enablement isn't something that comes up a lot. And I think that's even more the case in non-life science type patents. And so it's possible that the decision in this case will not have a major impact on other types of patent litigation. Having said that, though, the issue of functional claiming which is closely related to, to what we're dealing with in this case, is something that's getting a bit more scrutiny, both at the, I believe, at the patent office and in the courts. And so the idea of claiming, say, for a semiconductor, what it does versus how it's built, that could be affected somewhat by the Amgen decision, depending on how broadly the decision is worded. Having said that, though, it's unusual for the Supreme Court in this type of case to really go beyond deciding the particular issue it has to decide. So I wouldn't expect there to be much of an impact in other types of cases. But we'll see. That's kind of the, the fun of it now as we get to kind of speculate about what might happen. So the arguments on this case are a couple of weeks from now on the 27th. So stay tuned, and I suppose the decision will come out some months thereafter. Thanks, everyone, again. Yes, thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this Procopio Perspectives podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already, and visit Procopio.com to learn more about Procopio. Thank you for listening.